I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Sharon Lever. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by Vice Presidents Bobby Cameron and Alan Bondi to discuss the concept of future fit technology. Welcome both. Great, thanks. Yeah, great to be here. So guys, what's the easiest way to define this concept of future fit tech? You know, let me give you the definition and, and then maybe give you a bit of, of the substance underneath it. What we've call, said is future fit technology is a customer obsessed approach to technology that enables a company to quickly reconfigure business structures and capabilities. So change what it does to meet future customer and employee needs with adaptivity, creativity, and resilience. Now you asked for quick. The challenge here with the quick is that we're looking at the richness of where technology is going and the acceleration coming out of the pandemic and coming up with a model that represents the application of three key strategies being adaptive, creative, and resilient. So one thing I'll just add is it also ponders how do we roll this out, right? This this is, I, I like to say this is a blueprint, right? And, and then it's up to you as an organization, how do you s- sort of uh, source the material and, uh, you know, build uh, how many floors you want and see if you want the bonus room and things like that. This is very much a blueprint, but also we hope it's portable across all different types of companies and maturities and industries and things like that. So it is very much a framework, but also it's a blueprint. That's exactly right. And what are the key benefits of it? I mean, I'm assuming here that, well, I know, obviously, um, that there's, there, there are things that are pushing or pushed you all to come up with this new approach. So maybe we should start there. What is it that's different now that tells us tech leaders have to have a different approach? And if you follow it, what do you what do you see? What are the business results of it, of taking this kind of approach? So, so the, there really are four key items that we were looking at uh, as we tried to figure out this future fit strategy. And these are characteristics of technology investment over the last decade. The first and probably the, 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 the most painful has been declining technology productivity. We've seen this pretty consistently where investment's been rising and, and the productivity of firms, investment in technology has been rising and the productivity of firms has remained pretty flat. Now, part of that, what's going on there is that there's digital sameness, meaning that companies are playing a leapfrog with each other. Someone does something creative with uh, digital technology and tomorrow morning, their competition has it. So uh, not from a productivity point of view there, but from value creation. And that's that's essentially toward the end of the, of the um, 2010s has flattened out what companies are able to achieve. That shows up in what has been a flattening customer experience index using Forrester CX index capability. Um, we've seen a little bit of rise during the pandemic, but Heading into the last part of the decade, we found that leaders and laggards alike were either flat or declining in that index. And finally, what the pandemic represents is another piece that's driven us to look for this new technology approach, and that's systemic uncertainty. So the pandemic itself, as as horrendous as it is, is just one of a flow of activities. Think of the 08-09 Great Recession. Think of of uh, uh, trade wars and geopolitical unrest uh, and uh, global warming. All of these other things are going on that makes uncertainty a part of what we plan. So Sharon, to your question, 
what we've been what we were motivated to do in this work is to look at how companies are able to accelerate and improve their ability to deliver on customer obsession in the midst of all these other things. And so we took a leadership point of view. We went out and looked at what the leaders are doing. And these are obviously in pandemic companies got money to spend. Um, and then where are they spending it? And what we found is that they are accelerating their digital investments. So they're driving improved customer experience, improved employee experience. Um, and they are also looking to drive greater ecosystem responsiveness. And out of that comes then the three strategies that we've we've talked about here, which are uh, they are adaptive. That's that you know ability to change the the business model. They are creative. They're able to create better customer value, understand where the customers are going, new emerging needs, and they're resilient dealing with that that uncertainty. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you know, we've spent years and years of spending more and more money on technology, not necessarily seeing it pay off because we've kind of all just sort of moved along and minimal productivity uh, gains, not a lot of creativity, a lot of firms kind of moving in the in lockstep, but not being able to differentiate with technology. Um, throw in a dose of even more uncertainty than we've seen in the past. And you've got a recipe for, we need to shake things up completely, right? A whole new approach to technology because what we've been doing in the past hasn't really, arguably it really hasn't been working for the past and it's definitely not going to work for the future. Exactly right. And at the same time, we see some companies excelling and accelerating. So the question is, what are those companies doing that's different? How come they're successful and a lot of other companies aren't? And that's really, that's really what Future Fit is, is an attempt to describe those, those leading firms. So let's go there. What does that strategy look like? What are the things that need to happen and, and be embraced to be successful? Yeah, so, so, so let's, let's drill into that. Also, I, I got to mention, and, and this is because a lot of my career I spent not in technology, but in marketing and in other areas, that, that this trend line and this need is not just being owned by traditional technologists, right? That this is something that's also attached to, you know, different buyer behavior. Um, you know, what's happened during the pandemic is we've seen consumers double down on e-commerce and in some cases buying products and services online that they've never bought before. So there's the sort of shifting buyer behavior that's also got to be considered in this discussion, uh, not to mention, oh, by the way, we're all um, connecting from home offices here you know, the backdrop of work becoming more distributed and more tech enabled and more automated and all these things. So absolutely, everything that Bobby said is sort of causing, I think, the technology teams to just do some self-examination of like, can we really adapt to this new world? But also, oh, by the way, all around, swirling around technology are consumers and um, EX folks and CX folks that are like, oh yeah, this stuff is also changing too. How can technology help? So I just have to make that point that this is this is not just technology um, strategy for technology's sake. It's really become, it takes a village here to reimagine the role of technology. And in fact, the contributors may in fact be citizen developers and they may be third parties and they may be gig, gig workers. And, and this is really uh, turning inside out, not just technology strategy, but all the other actors in the equation as well. So I have to make that point because it's it's also there's there's a role here for the techies and for the bean counters and all the other parts of the organization as well. So sometimes when we talk about terms, we make some assumptions that everyone has a common understanding of what we 
what we mean. So in light of future fit tech strategy, what do we mean by being adaptive, creative, and resilient? First of all, the terms are, are very important here. We very carefully worked through. And so we talk about a, being adaptive or adaptivity, which is an active state. Uh, the adaptability is a, is a, I could do it if I wanted, but adaptive sort of implies act, action. And, and I think that's key. And it's built, that particular term and its meaning in, in the future fit technology uh, comes from work we did about a year and a half ago, where we looked at leading edge firms and found that those who were growing three to four times their industry average were doing some things that were very special. And there are three key elements there. What, the first one is that they have the ability to uh, keep pace with emerging market and customer needs. So they're constantly picking up insights from their study of, of markets and customer behavior. The second is that they've got flexible technology, and, and that's a big piece, obviously, of future fit technology. We'll talk about that in detail. And the third element is that they have an adaptive organization so that they have future fit employees who are able to change. They uh, have increased their in, uh, interaction with the ecosystem. Another piece of future fit technology, by the way, um, where uh, because they have to change quickly, they can't necessarily organically shift their staff. So they're using more and more third party resources for non-core, non-critical skill sets and change management as a key piece. So those are the three pieces of, of adaptivity. That's the, the um, um, uh, ability to understand where the market's going, to have flexible technology, and to have a, 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 an adaptive organization. Now, the creative, the, so the second of those three strategies, uh, adaptive, creative, is all about bringing the human element into how technology gets deployed, the human element and discovering how to be different. The digital sameness and the whole flattening of the CX index is a consequence of having depended on the technology to bring the, the new value in. And we've lost some of the application of creativity. So that's about bringing that in. Now, the tools need to be there to enable from a future fit technology standpoint to differentiate what I do but it's, it's about new ways to get the value created and, and, and the tools that support that. And then the third element, so uh, adaptive, creative, and resilient, comes certainly most immediately out of the pandemic, where we've seen, as, as uh, uh, Alan was just saying, we've seen companies do work that they thought it would take them a couple of years in a month. You know, and you get companies like Siemens who rolled out 240,000 versions of Teams and brought people up to work from home in a matter of four or five weeks. Now, they had been planning for it, and that's, I guess, part of resilience. They'd thought about it, but that ability to retain uh, the brand value that's been created for the customers, regardless of what happens, requires a, an ability not only to have the technology available, but to have the business continuity supported and enabled. So that's that's really the, the, the future fit technology is the ability to support those three strategies. Can I ask, um, of those three, you know, adaptivity makes a ton of sense. I think we can all agree on that one. Um, resilience, for sure. The one that sticks out to me is creativity, um, to be honest. Um, I hear you in the digital sameness. But I, I'm wondering if, you know, Alan or Bobby, you could click into that. Why do we feel like the creativity piece is so important? 
Um, it feels like a maybe a nice to have, but is it always a must have from a tech strategy perspective for every organization? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take a cut of that because I think you, when you see this as a set, you're kind of like, as you said, yeah, I get the, to the, the top and the bottom, but what's this, what do you mean creative? And I think it really addresses, go back to what Bobby mentioned about digital sameness, right? How, how, is, how is the brand differentiating with technology? What experiences can you express? How can you extend sort of the value of the business through all those you know, technology channels or digital touches or things like that. If you don't do that, you're essentially just an operational company. And we know, and we know this from the CX index, we know this from uh, a lot of the research we do on the softer side of things that this is how you advance as a business is, is those, those experiences and the relationships. And in a way, I might argue that that's the essence of this all rolls up under customer obsession, but the, the, the core of what it means to be customer obsessed and express those experiences and be tuned into what people want and use the technology both to gather those signals and to create experiences back out to the market. That's the essence of being customer obsessed. So in a way, those are the things that actually we experience most often as consumers, right? It is that digital experience or the, um, experience when we check in at the hotel or, or at the airport back when we used to do those things. Um, it, it's all those expressions at that front end that of course need the back end technology, but those are the things that often most stand out when people describe a brand experience or the essence of the brand. And I think pulling that into tech strategy, again, as a, as a former CMO, it really makes me feel good that we've worked this into the model because oftentimes maybe that's not natural for techies to think about those expressions. No offense to my techie friends, but it's you think a lot about the code and the experience from the operations side, but we have to also think about it from the experience front end side. Well, and our customer experience index and the research around what makes customers, you know, uh, uh, deliver uh, value. So upsell, cross-sell, retention, advocacy, those characteristics of a successful business relationship with a customer we found is highly dependent on their emotional experience. And it's the creativity that's driving that we can make it efficient and effective, the, the other as three of the three aspects of customer experience. But that emotional piece doesn't come from the technology, unless that's accidental. It comes from that human creativity. And it's it's the content and it's the measurement. And it's it's a lot of the things that we maybe naturally think of in the digital world or digital agencies think about it. Certainly the MarTech folks think about it. That has to be included in any sort of um, corporate tech strategy. It has to be. Or, or you wind up with just the, the lines of business buying their own stuff and not having it harmonized. And maybe the, the marketing folks have their own stacks and that's also not going to work, right? That That's the idea of co-ownership doesn't work if if every group has their own stack. So I'm 100% I'm, I'm bought in. I love it. Um, and it sounds really Pollyannish. So let's get into the details here. It sounds fantastic, but how the heck do you make that happen? And and I know this is where you guys have introduced the the three P's. So let's let's dig into those and and talk about how this new future fit tech strategy delivers on all those promises um, on a day to day basis. How do you operate this thing? The three P's as as um, as we've worked through them are really a, a reimagining of people, process, and technology, where the people is the um, the, the partners, the process is the practices and the technologies the, 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 is the platforms. 
And of those three, the most techie is the platforms. And I think that's a critical piece where we see um, these leading edge firms who are accelerating, they're not building the full stack every time they move. They're highly uh, leveraging platforms. Now, the simplest version of that's cloud. Cloud's a platform. Uh, and, and so it's the all the infrastructure I need to operate, in, including uh, the, the services, the people-based services to make that work. And if I'm cloud native in a container, then all that's hidden from me through this container I build my work in. That's the platform, though, is, is, is expanding and it's important beyond just that infrastructure view. So, for instance, ERP, which is running all the companies in the world, for most companies is becoming a platform, a system of record that we interface with. But we then in a different tech stack, build out how we engage with people. And that's actually another platform, digital experience platform, or how we uh, engage with machines. And that might be through uh, Internet of Things and some sort of interface there. And, and there are actually IoT platforms emerging. So you see there's a, this flow of technologies that are being built out as platforms. Now, we, we can go into greater depth there, but I, I want to build out the P's. So the platforms is a critical shift in buying behavior. Yeah, and, and one note there, right, that the platform isn't necessarily a vendor, right? You could have a vendor that builds the foundation for a platform, but mostly we're talking about a multi-vendor collection or bundle of things, but they're partnering and they're mixing and matching those parts so that there's efficiencies and economy of scale in the platform. But but don't assume that one vendor is creating one platform. And in fact, we see the systems integrators coming in and now building, that's Ted Shadler's current work, is looking at how the, the, the systems integrators are if you will, uh, pre-integrating platforms for use by customers and mm-hmm. spelling out the maintenance of that platform as, as a piece of uh, of an annuity revenue. Like IBM's travel platformers, for example, which is a bundle of, of capabilities of which they don't provide most of the technology, but they provide the know-how and the data and the sort of wrapper around the technology. That's right. And, and being available as a SaaS solution is a wonderful way those things do, in fact, occur. Okay. So that's the platform. Now, the practices is, is, I think, one of the most exciting characteristics of this transformation that's underway in that what we see is companies moving beyond the traditional IT business partnership that we've had as sort of our, our, our bellwether for so long and moving into shared accountability. And the difference is if, if you and I, Alan, were working on the, a project and you were the business and our IT and we were partners, we would talk together, we would collaborate, we would interact and, and make sure that we were on the same business and we'd run off and do our own work. As having shared accountability, we've got the same performance metrics. We're both driving to the same business outcome. And so that there's no ambiguity about what success is. Doesn't matter how I do my job. If you're not doing yours, we collectively don't get there. Yeah, even better. What's exciting about that is how people, so it's like, okay, that sounds great. How do we do this? This is where our work in areas like OKRs fit in, right? That we could both be um, managing to the same objectives, yet Bobby's tech team could have its own key results, and my business team or my marketing team has its own key results, but we're working towards similar objectives. And to me, that's just a nice way to codify this idea of well, how do you have joint ownership? You you share some of the same OKRs, for example. And so what we start doing is making decisions based on those outcomes. We make funding decisions. We, you know, we pick platforms based on outcomes. Why do we not build the tech stack on our own? Because we want to be adaptive. We want to change quickly. We shift to platform. And that's a collective decision. And so it moves those kinds of decisions out from the, the, the lower ends of the tech stack into the bigger picture. 
So that's the practices. A lot of governance shifts around the shared accountability, uh, a lot of trust. If, if we are working against the same objectives, we can move faster. I don't have to go to a committee to get approved because I'm I'm, I'm trying to work at the same goal you are. So there's a, you know, a, a trust but verify kind of a mode that makes that shared accountability work. So I know you want to get to the third P there, but I'm going to interrupt you for yeah, a second. Yeah, go ahead, please. On um, practices, it sounds like what you're saying, and you used the word governance there in a minute. You said shift in governance practices. It kind of sounds to me like you're saying pull back on governance processes. We are all used to command and control. And command and control is that 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 review committee, but but you start you know look at look at some of our research around how uh, scaled agile safe in particular fails and it fails because you get all of these committees and hundreds of them got to meet and review everything and and it just it dies on its accreted meetings, versus what Charlie Betts has been writing about uh, I think April March or April is is, is publishing date um, he had had introduced this notion of promise where if we promise to pursue the same results and we're tracking so we can, you know, uh, a trust is, 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 does require transparency, then we can go along without having to get those approvals done. And, and what we do then and what makes governance work is we didn't get rid of it. We make it run on trust and promise with the ability to escalate. So you can look at uh, CIBC, um, the, the uh, Toronto-based bank, has this built out. So they've got nine vectors they're trying to drive performance on. So one of them's digital, one of them's customer experience, those kinds of things. The PL still own the investment stream. So they're spending the money and they can make their decisions. But the portfolio of investments is constantly being reviewed by teams that focus on each of those horizontal things like digital uh, and, and the example, to make just bring this home for you, Sharon, that I think is a wonderful example, is retail branch operations. The physical store branch wanted to build out a check scanning in store so people didn't have to go up to the teller. And the digital people looking at it said, hey, time out. We've already got a, a, a mobile-based scanner, and we're building out a web-based use of a home printer scanner. One of those two's got to be able to support your in-branch. Pick one. Don't go build another one because we're already confusing our customer as it is. Let's minimize that. And because there were the governance mechanism was set up is that if there were a problem, if any of those horizontal people had a problem, the CEO said, come call me. I'll answer the phone anytime you call. Then there's no discussion. But, but that's not a command and control. That is a trust. And the transparency through the portfolio allows for that, that validation. Yeah, and what I'm what I'm liking about this is it also sounds like it's an actual operating model that you could implement to make this real, right? To finally get that level of innovation and so forth out at the edge of the customer or out of the edge of the organization, closer to the customer, without putting your company at risk. That's right. It's not new age woo woo kind of you know we we all say ohm and it works. Right. No, there are real principles. There are real things that go on. That's right. Exactly. Just to go back to the point that you were making and sort of the comment that at CIBC, the CEO was part of the equation. Like this is this is starting from the top across the board, across leadership. Everyone has got skin in the game to operate this way. Shared accountability. That's the core, the core. Instead of having, you know, having teams fighting with each other, you know, we're all in the same boat. 
we're, we're after the same goal. So the CEOs actually in, in that particular example is the one that made it happen. He walks in and says, we're going digital and I don't, I'm not going to change my structure and where the budgets sit because that makes sense. Those guys are people responsible for capital performance and, and profitability and revenue. However, we can't do this new world that way. We've got to have consistent customer experience end to end across our entire value stream. How do we do that? Well, we can't build these interlocking decision trees like my comment about safe. We've got to make it work organically. And how do we do that? We create this trust verify. All right. So that's two. So that's that's two of the P's. That's the platform and the the, the practices. And now the the partners. And here it's 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 a huge impact. And, and Alan, you'll feed fill this in after I set it up. If if I'm going to be um, moving quickly, I can't organically grow my change. Just like my comment about uh, the adaptive organization can't grow people fast. I can't grow my technology stack fast. So I am increasingly dependent on third parties. And again, cloud's a, a, a very common example of that. And if I'm building in Kubernetes containers and I can roll into any OpenShift platform and change a whole lot about my environment with reasonable ease. And, and so that's kind of the, the dream state of this. But the point being is that I'm going to have shorter contracts with fewer players because I'm, I'm, I'm contracting for one platform, not for all the component elements. And that allows me then to have a rich dependency on the ecosystem, but I can move around the ecosystem to pick up players who can fill in holes I, I've, I, I have the ability to do on my own and to do it relatively quick, quickly and easily relatively, nothing's free, and, and move move around quickly. So that partner dependency, ecosystem dependency is a key characteristic of being adaptive, and it comes through that partner program. So can we shift a little bit to, um, we started this by saying we needed a new approach to technology strategy, which I think we've, we've dove into pretty well here. Put in the context of the pandemic, if you will, I'm, I'm, you know, we've talked about different modes that the companies are in during the pandemic. Is this something that every company, regardless of what kind of financial position they're in right now, can adopt? Or is this something that's like future oriented when you're ready to start accelerating and that might not be everybody currently? Yeah, I, I think to this point of certainly co companies have been struggling in different ways. Um, if you look at future fit tech from that lens um, and, and even just with a goal of how can we tighten up budgets, you know, th there is this essence of, well, let's see what platforms you already have and can you leverage those platforms and consolidate other systems and do rationalization? This is, you know, work we've looked at in terms of um, in response to the, the, the need to cut budgets that I think this approach, when you look at just the platform dimension, that actually has some clues of how you can consolidate and create some relief simply by moving workloads off of one platform into the sort of platform of record that you're building around. Um, certainly, Duncan Jones and, other, and others have talked about even renegotiating your um, your relationships with some of those platform providers in advance of saying, listen, this will be our platform of the future, so we need some relief here in terms of our fees short term. So I think there's that lever. The second one is... If you go forward, and this this is where the model starts to inform the ways that you uh, fund new purchases, 
in the way that you manage them and the way that you maybe even create new types of joint ventures that we think going forward, and this is maybe when people are free of the pandemic and when they're starting to invest again, but maybe even during the pandemic, that we think that the model gives them opportunities to be more creative. There's creative again, um, in terms of how they structure those relationships, how they find funding, how they find joint venture partners. And so I think on both of those dimensions, both sort of reducing existing spend through consolidation and also being smarter about their spend going forward, I think those are two really nice sort of cost savings dimensions that shouldn't be underplayed, right? We talk a lot about speed and time to market as the as the headline benefits of future fit, but I think that those the the efficiency and the and the cost savings are absolutely part of the model, which would apply in good times or bad. Yeah, and some of that's technical debt pay down too. I know Sharon, you've picked up on that in, in some of the material you've been producing. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that 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 this approach starts to, depending on how aggressive you are in adopting it, starts to dig you out of the technical debt hole, right? Um, and ongoing keeps you from digging yourself further into that technical debt hole. But it also strikes me that then maybe a good place to start is just to your point, Alan, right? Doing that rationalization, looking where you can consolidate and get yourself an order there to free up some cash and then get on this treadmill of being able to apply the money in the right places and not investing in things that are just going to get you further into technical debt that's not going to be adaptive to the future. The wonderful thing is that that process of examination and inventorying what you have, you'd want to do anyways. But now if you're doing this with this idea of starting to focus on these platforms, that helps you sort of see what's in or out of that future platform. And also, we just know this is good practice, right? That when you talk about SaaS and cloud, the wonderful thing is that everybody can sign up for some service because of SaaS and the cloud. The problem is people have been doing that all over organizations. We know that SaaS sprawl is a real thing. And so even if this is part of your strategy, it feeds into what your platform approach should be, but also you're going to find stuff that people aren't using or there's duplication or whatever. That's just it's good practice, but people forget to do it in good times. They're like, yeah, we know the marketing team has a whole bunch of stuff that they bought, but it doesn't cost that much. So we're just not going to pester them. And if we take, take and if we take the pandemic modes and apply it to what you just said, what we see is 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 the struggling companies are having to do this. They're 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 working real hard to find the right way out. Out of out of necessity, right? And and if they if they survive, but we also see the adaptive and growing people doing it too because the vendors are getting used to being hit on. Hey, wait a minute! I want to use fully usage based pricing. I don't want to be paying for stuff I'm not using. I, you just gave it over to Sam over here, so why don't you give it to me? And I think that's what's going to accelerate, as you talked about the the market impact of this, accelerate the shift in the in the uh, uh, payment models are, are being driven by this the reality that there's a bunch of companies out there who just can't pay their bills. And so the the, the vendors are, are having to shift how they work, how they make their money. So guys, let's take a an example um, and a healthy company, because we know that there are various modes that firms are in today, but let's take a, a healthy organization that's all in on future tech strategy and this approach. What does that firm look like a year from now and three years from now. Let, let me hit a technical perspective, Alan, and maybe you pick the business side. <clears throat> from a technical point of view, the, the there isn't a place to arrive. And I think that's an important piece of being uh, future fit, 
it's future fits about the ability to change, not the ability to arrive. So where you arrive at is the ability to change. And I'm not trying to play with the words there. It's, it's critical that companies understand that that's the target. So let's, you know, if we look, we can look at some extreme companies like Hire. We've written about having a, a you know, sort of a perfect example of this adaptive mode um, that we're talking about here. But let's let's take a, a more normal firm. There's a um, uh, a pharmaceutical company, a global company that during the pandemic has been able to shift its manufacturing and distribution to produce the plasma-based antigen. Uh, delivery mechanisms and distribute it, but they they don't have enough uh, market share to, to both manufacture and distribute their current product and everything else. So they've actually got 10 of their competitors working with them to make this happen. And how they're doing that is they've got very strong digital platforms, their, their whole ability to handle uh, distribution and manage that whole go-to-market piece is highly automated. And that gives them the ability then to change their business model with reasonable ease and speed. And, and so in, in, in the middle of the pandemic, because they had been investing in technology and, and, and digital flexibility, so digital experience-based and, and operational-based technologies, they are actually able to change with a great deal of ease. So coming out of it, they're likely to expand their model from what was a small number of, of uh, pharmaceuticals that had a niche in the market. But this experience they're gaining now is likely to help them go into more and more, uh, maybe even disruptive business models. And that's actually what we project is the true leading edge, create disruptive innovations because of how effective they are at this future fit technology. Yeah, maybe let me amplify that last point, because I think we see companies once they've embraced this at scale, they're able to launch, you know, new business models, new businesses, new digital products um, at a pace that looks more like a software company, right? We've talked for years about everyone's becoming a software company. Well, in some cases, they actually are. Uh, we profiled the Home Depot a couple years back, and um, you know, they remade themselves as a as a digital company with with digital agencies and writing the software that runs the Home Depot and creating what then was the leading retail mobile app in, in our assessment. And this wasn't accidental, but they took on a lot of the characteristics that we're now calling as uh, a future fit tech strategy, right? That they they built around platforms. They created a culture of we have to own the physical meets digital they reinforced it with leadership like every earnings call they talk about this this mission i think all of those things and, and to bobby's example as well that it's both the pace at which they can do this but also the fact that they'll have different types of operating models or ventures that are going to fund it and support it and it's not going to be from traditional it funding sources it may be from very different funding sources well thank you both for joining us today you bet. Fun conversation. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.